Amen. Hey, I'm Cameron. I'm one of the teaching pastors here. It's good to be with you all this morning. We will be in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. So as you're turning there, let me tell you the key truth that I'd love for us to walk away with. It's this. It's that Jesus gives us the Lord's Supper as an opportunity to live out our baptism in Christ. Let me say that again. Jesus gives us the Lord's Supper as an opportunity to live out our baptism in Christ. If you would, give your attention to the reading of God's Word. This is Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the, and, and the, fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, as we step into this text, uh, I want to remind you that we had preached uh, a little bit earlier portion during the section where we were focusing on baptism. And so I wanted the opportunity to bring baptism and the Lord's Supper back together because this is the, the power out of which they are doing the things that they are doing. Now, this is a, a passage that has captured the imaginations of many. And I think in some ways it's been good and in some ways it's been bad. The way in which I think that it's actually been bad is that we try to make it a new law, that we try to take Acts chapter 4, 42 to 47, and turn it into something pre overly prescriptive, which uh, we're going to see actually in church history, as you move into the church at Corinth, these days seem to be long gone. So instead of focusing on like, hey, maybe we should just sell all our stuff, right, and put it in a big pile, and, uh, and, and, you know, just give to as everyone had need. That, that's that, not a terrible idea, right, red-blooded Americans? Uh, and so that's not what we're being asked to do, but there is a sense in which this is not a new law, but a new reality. And it's a new reality born of their baptism. They are a different kind of people. And so this same spirit, this same reality can be true of us without it necessarily becoming a law that we are trying to follow in a way that would actually make us less uh, of who we are to be in Christ in our baptism. And so, uh, as we turn back to the text, I want to ask you a question. Uh, how often do you remember your baptism? Now, I know I've, I've asked this question in lots of different ways and lots of different times, but there's a reason that we keep pressing the issue, right? Uh, and, and in some part, we're having to remind ourselves as a church, too often I fail to speak to you as baptized ones. I, I fail even at, in shepherding you to sometimes remind you of your baptism and to help you improve upon it. And so one of the great gifts of the Lord's Supper is it reminds us that we have been baptized, right? You, you, the baptism is the initiating rite for us coming into the community, covenant community of faith. And then the Lord's Supper is the sustaining rite. It's the thing that helps nourish us all along the way. And we do ourselves a disservice when we don't remember our baptism as part of that, right? Uh, so it's a, a unique opportunity for us to remember. Because remember, these folks that are celebrating in the way that they are have just been baptized. 
not only with water, but in the power of the Holy Spirit. They've just come out of Pentecost. So there's a, a, an interesting parallel to the text that we looked at last week in that you, you're coming out of the transfiguration where Peter was like, hey, let's just build little, little huts and live up here forever. But Jesus is like, no, we got to carry all this glory back down into the valley. And immediately they encounter the man with the son who's demon-possessed and the demon's trying to kill him, if you remember. And he had doubts, but it was the glory of Christ that helped him uh, to see that there is a greater reality possible in and through the person and work of Christ. And so this is important for us. While we would love, when you read Acts chapter 2, 42 to 47, doesn't it make your heart long for something better than what we've got at times? Doesn't it make your heart kind of long for, man, I, I, wish, I wish our church services had this kind of something to it. Right? I, wish, I wish the kind of hospitality I practice at my home would be reflective of this. And those are good desires. But we got to remember, we, we are, are far, far north of Pentecost, though the Spirit indwells us. We'll hear more about that next week. But we are carrying glory back into a fallen circumstance. We are welcoming people into these circumstances. We are struggling with unity ourselves. Well, this is a, a good thing. Remember, this is right at the inception where all the power and the glory was, was really manifest to them. But just like they did, we too kind of drift away, don't we? In our unbelief and in our fallenness and in our struggles and in our doubts. And so we need something to reorient us and bring us back. This is the beauty of the Lord's Supper that reminds us of who and whose we are in our baptisms. And so as we look at the text, we want to notice a few things here. Notice that they devoted themselves to something. Now, this is something you can do. You, you very easily can devote yourselves to the apostles' teaching. Now, what's interesting is, so what would be the apostles' teaching at this point, right? What, what did they have access to? So they don't have all the letters to the churches yet. So they don't have all of Paul's stuff that he will write subsequently. What they would have had, and, and what we saw in our assurance of pardon, they would have had a discussion about the person and work of Christ. We would do very well to devote ourselves to the study of the person and work of Christ as our primary foundation for all theology. Too much of what we do is based on either practicality, right, or circumstance. Our political views often, it's interesting, are the views that probably protect the most of what we've got. If we're honest, that's all of us. Versus being able to say, well, no, this is, I hold this view or I'm voting this way in this particular election because of the person and work of Christ that I, I see most predominantly. This is the way in which I feel led. Uh, instead of letting circumstance like taxes and how much of your money they're going to get, they're going to get what they're going to get. They're all in the same they're all in the same gang, I hate to tell y'all. Uh, and so, uh, so we've got to have something that serves as a firmer foundation for how we conduct ourselves. How then we should live is based on the person and work of Christ. And again, I think we make things overly complex. And usually, if you're paying attention, if, you're, if you yourself even are making something overly complex, it's because you really wanted something else in the first place. You see this in parenting, don't you? Right? When you, you're trying to get your child to understand something that's very clear, it's very clear that this is good for them and that's not good for them, notice how complex their arguments get in trying to get what they really want. You married folk, you know this well. 
when you've got something that you really want that may or may not actually be biblical, that may or may not be of Christ, notice how suddenly complex your arguments become and how you go searching for people to say things that will help your argument as opposed to having Christ be the litmus test and the demarcator and reconciliation be the, the simplest, although it is a complex thing, but the simplest straight line between any two points. We all do this. Theologically, it's amazing. Uh, the, the, in, in terms of when people will come to me with things that are not, this is clearly not built, the, the complexity of the argument that unfolds is at times uh, kind of impressive. But what they wanted to make sure of, and even Paul says this, right? Paul says, I, I didn't want to preach anything among you except what? Christ crucified. He didn't even get more complex than that. He didn't even try to make the, the, the distinction about homoousius or any of these things that later councils will fight over. He wanted to make sure, do you understand that the God of this universe sent his son to die for you because he loves you and longs to be with you for eternity? If that is not the foundational thing by which you operate, we are in trouble. Everything else becomes fool's bargain. And so these folks, they dedicated themselves. And you may say, what is there to learn? I mean, okay, fine, Jesus died for us. You guys ever played the game Apples to Apples? Well, there's a horrendous biblical version. <laughs> Showing my cynical cards here. Well, we used to play with friends, and, and my kids would play. And at the time, Devin was about 12, right? And if you know how the game works, somebody puts a card out that has like a subject matter, and then you're trying to win that card from the person who's put it out by virtue of giving them a card that best describes whatever the, the subject is, right? And so my friend Christy Freeman put a card out, and, it, and she just, uh, or no, uh, Devin put a card out. He was the one playing the card, and it was something that like, had to do with great complexity. And Christy knew she had won it. Her, she had a card that said Trinity. How do you not win that? The only way you wouldn't win it is if there was a card that said lapsarianism or something foolish, but I don't think that one's in there. And so she throws it out, and Devin looks at it and casts it aside without even giving it a thought. And she's like, whoa, whoa, what are you doing? He goes, Trinity, three in one. It's not that complex. Anyway, moving right along. <laughs> you know, I, I think Devin may have been on to something. I think he may have been on to something. Now, not in the way that he was on to it. But the, the reality that oftentimes we try to take what, what we've been told, like the, the, that Christ is the God-man. They're not trying to make that argument here. They, they were understanding Christ to be the one who had came and died for them and had risen uh, and had filled them with the Holy Spirit. That was their most pressing reality. And too often we move on from that, right? That's what's signified and sealed in our baptism, is it not? The crucifixion of Christ and how our sin is crucified with him. And not only is it crucified with him, but we are dead in our trespasses, but raised in newness of life because he is raised, because he has declared victory over the grave, over sin, death, the devil, and, and any and everything else that claims us but God. And, and we need to be reminded of that. How often do we get pulled in so many different directions? There's so many different podcasts. There's so many different things to read. There's so many different uh, things trying to vie for our imaginations and, and, and attention. And we would do well to dedicate and devote ourselves just as they did 
to making sure that we stare long at the person and work of Christ and that that affects us. This has been something fairly recent for me in the sense of just being blown away that, that I am loved of God. Right? I don't know that there's anything deeper. In fact, Scripture tells you there's not. In fact, Paul says, if you're even going to consider the matter, i got to pray for you. i got to pray that you'll have strength and the power of the Holy Spirit to be able to even begin to comprehend something that is limitless. It has no bounds, top or bottom, east or west, or of any kind. So where would we exhaust meditating on that reality? And then have that affect how we live, right? So they dedicated themselves to learning of Christ and doing that together. Think about the confession that I can't see it all, right? I, I, I can't, I don't house all of the attributes of God in and of myself. I am insufficient for being able to appreciate how profoundly I am loved without your help. And so are you. And think of how important it is for us to remind each other, you are Beloved, because just like the father last week, do we not all find ourselves at times unlovely, unlovable, feeling as if in some way, shape, or form, how is it that God could ever love someone as foolish and as fallen and as repetitively uh, sinful as I am? Now, that's not carte blanche to sin. In fact, this is, if, you, if you want freedom from those things, it is to meditate on and understand how deeply and profoundly you are loved and then how profoundly you are equipped to handle the things that beset you. You're no longer a slave to those things. And, and remember, Romans 6 connects that to our baptism. This is why we must take every opportunity that we can to improve upon our baptism. And the Lord's Supper is yet another way in which we can do that. And so we are in community for a reason. We are to remind each other of these things. It is not. This is something we've got to press against. Because I think, I've seen it among some of us. I've seen it in some other groups of Christians where we almost still have a little bit of that Acts 29 spirit in us that kind of crept into the frame that's like, hey, if we're a bunch of dudes together, you don't talk about God's love, man. You just talk about the game or, you know, let's not get into anything too heavy. No. You take every opportunity. When, when God's people are gathered together, we should take every opportunity to make sure that we know that we are profoundly and deeply loved of God by virtue of what Christ has done for us. And it, notice it also says the breaking of bread and the prayers. Now, there's a decent amount of ink been spilt on whether or not this is a discussion of them practicing the Lord's Supper, this idea of the breaking of bread. We just saw it in the, in the assurance of pardon. Notice that Christ was revealed in the breaking of bread uh, as he revealed himself through the Old Testament to the disciples who were on their way. And so uh, it seems to be, given that it's connected to the prayers, which seems to indicate that they had some measure of liturgy which if you know anything about something called the Didache, there is actually some first century liturgical stuff that's out there. Uh, but this seems to be a bit more formal. It seems to be that they were practicing the Lord's Supper as God's baptized people together in the way that Paul calls for the Corinthians to do, if you remember from Matt's sermon in 1 Corinthians 11. Right? They were to be considerate of who was gathering together. This is something that we as baptized ones should be other-oriented. 
We should be aware of uh, the impact that things are having on those around us, whether it's an issue of hospitality or need or prayer. And so in this fellowship, they were practicing some of the things of the church. Now, remember where they are. This is a, a group of Jews. There is no first Baptist of, or first Presbyterian of anything. There is no building. There is no formal institution. There are no elders, no deacons. They have apostles at this time, right, leading and guiding them in, in Christ. But they are gathering in homes, and practicing the things that will become the liturgy of the church. So again, this is why I argue this is wonderful for, for considering as reality, but not as law. This is not, they're not giving this is how it's supposed to be done, because even those who are present, apostle-wise, move on further into the church growing into a larger institution, as it were, that would need various things. You see it in the book of Acts. Where do deacons arguably come from? those who serve tables, to free up the apostles to be able to uh, teach and do what they were called to do, as opposed to trying to decide whether or not the Hellenistic widows were getting their proper portion. But this is, a, this is something we ought to be about, right? Should we not be a people of prayer? Should we not be a people who regularly uh, observe the Lord's Supper seriously, joyfully, celebratory? And it goes on, and awe, as a result of these things, notice where awe comes upon them all. Not before they've uh, put all their stuff together and decided who would have what and what they needed. This is just through their worship and fellowship, awe came upon them all. This is something we ought to long for. This is something that we ought to pray for and ask the Lord to grant to us, Right? That the Lord would show us awe, that we would be moved by the means of grace that he has chosen, no matter how foolish we think they are, no matter how common we think they are, he chose them. We should trust him who is wiser than we who created all things, who has loved us in ways that we can't even comprehend, that we don't return. And so, in, in addition to this, many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Again, there's an argument that the apostles, because of their proximity to Jesus, had a unique ability to display wonders and signs. Let me also caution you, for those of you who've read the book of Revelation, notice the forces of darkness can do signs and wonders as well. Lest your imagination be captured by the ooing and the awing. Much of what the Lord chooses to do is through mundane stuff. Our Thursday group's been doing a book called Hearing God by Dallas Willard. In this most recent chapter, I, I was, I was uh, at times got a little nervous in the book as to where he might be heading, but uh, he helped ground it a bit in this last chapter. He basically said, for those who need signs and wonders to believe that God loves them, that's a sign of immaturity. And that, and that those who actually are maturing and walking close to the Lord and aware of uh, Jesus' work in their lives can more readily hear it in everyday type things. They are, they, they are able to see it more clearly in more places because they, have, uh, they are, are drawing near to the Lord. Whereas you, know, you think about a, a, a situation like a guy named Gideon. The Lord very clearly commanded him. And he's like, uh, I don't know. Won't you make this thing right here wet? 
this little sheepskin. And he's like, mm, best two out of three. Make it dry. <laughs> and he still wasn't real sure, right? That's immaturity. And for too many of us, we take situations, like a situation concerning reconciliation, maybe even our marriages, maybe stuff with, with other family members, maybe all, all kinds of different things that we struggle with, and, and we go, hey, Lord, I need you to give me a sign as to whether or not I should do X, Y, or Z, and the Lord's going, I'm not giving you a sign because you already know what you're supposed to do. That's your sign. I've spoken. You are to, to forgive. You are to move toward each other in reconciliation. Now, I understand there's lots of layers to that. But again, too often, we're trying to make things insanely complex. We're, we're looking for signs and wonders when the truth should be sufficient. And it goes on. And all who believed were together. That means they had unity. And they had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing to the proceeds to all as any had need. Now, again, this is a particular cultural circumstance. They, remember, they're in exile. The Jews were not uh, uh, beloved by Rome. Now, Rome tolerated lots of people because they, were, uh, they, they allowed all religions to practice freely. Like, they were the first religious freedom kind of empire. And so they were fine. You can practice your little stuff. You just don't mess with the government. And don't go thinking you're going to get powerful anytime soon. And so there were ways in which Rome would not have taken care of their people. And so they were looking at the circumstance saying, hey, we need to be other-oriented. We're baptized ones. We have partaken of the Lord's table. This should shape how we look about the circumstance. And we handle this in a number of ways. We have a mercy fund, which our deacons uh, make use of. And we, anytime we do know of a particular need that rises, many times in your small groups, you guys handle it before it ever makes it up the food chain, as it were. And then other times when there's need, we make it known to you so the church can respond. And we've had circumstances where we've helped people through long seasons of joblessness or a particular circumstance that someone had need. And so this spirit, this reality continues today. We just don't, don't all put it in one bank account. But there were cultural circumstances that made this more necessary for the expression of their baptizedness, their expression of their union with Christ. And it says, and day by day, attending the temple together, again, that's unique to their circumstance. We, we, we don't, they, and them going to temple, you understand, that's not church. You know, going to temple was still just straight Old Testament Jewishness stuff. Now, why did they go to temple? Because they now knew what was actually being spoken of. They knew the one who was being pointed forward to, and they were celebrating in a different way. They were able to make sense of things like the Passover and the sacrificial lamb. All these things made a different sense to them because of who Christ is. And so they didn't forsake the temple. They continued to participate and seek to actually draw others in to the gospel. And it says that they broke bread together in their homes. That's mentioned twice. And they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. Now, if there's any part of this passage that you want to say, hey, I really want to see this be the reality, this ought to be it. We ought to be, in any given group of people, the most generous and grateful people that anybody knows. We ought be. It's a, it's a cry and shame, and I, this is probably slight hyperbole, but not beyond the pale. 
You know, if somebody sees a business card with an ichthus fish on it, usually where does it go? Trash. It goes right in the trash. Because so often, unfortunately, people have misused that identity to try to get over on people with stuff. That is, that is wicked. And you, you may find that frustrating. Okay, well, the antidote to it is live different. Live baptized. Live as one who is fed on Christ regularly. Live as one who is generous and grateful and willing to suffer wrong if necessary. Willing to suffer loss to make something right, just as Christ did. That's what these folks were willing to do. A little bit later in the story, when uh, Peter and James and those guys are pulled in uh, to, to, to the Pharisees, you know, they beat them. They tell them, you got to stop preaching this gospel or we're going to kill you. And what they do? They didn't stop. They got bolder. Even when they were in prison, remember, that Peter gets delivered from prison, knocks on the door. They think he's a ghost. Later when Paul comes to Christ and he's in prison, he gets delivered from prison. The, the gospel is at work here in a way that is beautiful. That we, we should long for this to still be true of us today, but before any of that can be really true, we've got to be these kinds of people. We've got to be baptized ones. But instead, we're, we're half, I mean, you're half bored with this. Easily distracted by the things of God. You heard it all before. Okay, well, let's go live it. Let's live it in such a way that it would, this, the rest of it could be true. We would be able to find favor with people and that the, the church would actually grow. Uh, but I don't, is it going to grow with us as bored as we are with it? Is it going to grow with us as cynical about the future uh, in this country? Is it going to grow if, if, if we ourselves are unloving in how we speak of other image bearers? Will the church grow if all we care about is ourselves? No. Not, not such that we could take joy in it. It will grow because even the rocks and trees will cry out when you won't say a word. Even creation will display the glory of God in such a way that people will be drawn to him. But wouldn't it be better for us to take part in it and to be able to have joy in it looking a little more on earth as it does in heaven? That we would long for the things that Christ longed for, long to love the way that God has so loved us, so loved the world. And so, uh, as we bring this sermon to a close, I've included the question from uh, Westminster Larger Catechism 174. This text is one of the proof texts for it. Uh, and it, it just talks about how, how we ought to receive the Lord's Supper during its administration. Listen at these things. It says, those who receive the sacrament of the Lord's Supper are required during the administration of it to the following, that they will wait upon God with all holy reverence and attention. What does that mean? Well, it means that we trust the Lord to be who he says he is, even if in his timing he chooses something different that we would choose. Remember, his thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. It is arrogant for us to think we know better. So we have to wait. 
whether it's a longing for reconciliation or something to change or healing or whatever it may be. And then it says that they diligently observe the sacramental elements and actions. This means you meditate on the personal work of Christ. Lord's Supper is, is yet again a beautiful opportunity on a regular basis for us to consider Christ. You may say, yeah, well, don't we do that kind of every week? Do we? Do you? And they heedfully discern the Lord's body. That means, as Matt preached a, a few weeks ago, that we take notice of what's going on in the midst of the church, that we care about whether or not we are reconciled and unified with one another, that we would leave at the altar. We would not partake of the Lord's Supper until we were reconciled with whomever it may be that we are not, recognizing that the, as we hear and have heard week in and week out in our benediction, that the religious right is meaningless. The question is, are you walking in the reality of newness of life? That's what gives it meaning, not the other way around. And it says, it goes on, and they deeply meditate on his death and sufferings. Again, this is remember your baptism. You may be thinking, man, you've given us like 15 things to remember every time we do the Lord's Supper. Well, in the letter that will be coming out for the Lord's Supper next week, I'll detail some of that. You can, in wisdom, you can create your own rotation of how you, with each Lord's Supper, how you think about these things. You could create your own list or, or a way in which you go through and think about these things so as to better prepare. It's not that you don't have the opportunity and the options. It's whether you take them. It says, by this, they should stir themselves up to a vigorous exercise of their graces. Do you hear that vigorous exercise of their graces? Uh, judging themselves and sorrowing for sin, earnestly hungering and thirsting after Christ, feeding on him by faith, receiving his fullness, trusting in his merits, not our own, rejoicing in his love, giving thanks for his grace, and renewing their covenant with God with their love for all the saints. So in, in preparing for the Lord's Supper, do you reflect on your baptism? Is that, does that come into your mind at all? If not, all right. There's a way forward. It's a wonderful space for us to remember what Christ has done for us and to, and to think about it in real time. Why does Christ dying for you matter on an ordinary Wednesday afternoon? Why does you, the, your, your ability to, to rise to newness of life matter to you on a Saturday afternoon? And so... So not only to meditate on that, but to ask, now, now how might I better live out my baptism? Because just acknowledging it's one thing and that's great, but, but if we don't look any different in the world, if we don't look any different to our friends and neighbors, if, if, if we don't look any different to each other, well, then what are we doing? This is an opportunity for us to mature as a group of people. And that's only going to benefit those around us. So, Acts 2, 42 to 47 teaches us that Jesus gives us the Lord's Supper as an opportunity to live out our baptism in him. It should have an impact on our ethics. It should have an impact on how we live. It can't just be verbiage. It can't just be something that we're trying to claim as fire insurance to get us out of hell free. There is greater life than that in the resurrection. There is greater life than that in union with Christ, baptized once.
Let's long for that. Let's pray for that. Let's strain toward that upward call. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your words to us. Thank you for your grace. Thank you that you, um, you abide with us and you long for us to walk in newness of life. You long for us to live out our baptisms, uh, to, to, to know a greater joy than what we presently know, to know a greater life than what we presently know, free from the fears of all the things that, that, that haunt us, whether it's financial or political or uh, relational, parental, whatever it may be, Lord. Help us to see that we have means of grace by which we can lean into those things and walk in greater newness of life because of our baptism and nourished by the regular practice of the Lord's Supper. Would you help us, Father? Be better prepared, not because it is a, it is a law, but so that we can better celebrate, we can better enjoy, we can better know how deeply we are loved. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.